to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Bullock. People, organizations, and communities need to prepare for and respond to natural and man-made disasters in a timely manner and in the most effective way possible. Our program examines what is being done before, during, and after a disaster and those unexpected events to keep you in the know. Disasters can happen to anyone. The question is, when will it happen to you? Now, here is your host, business continuity and disaster planning expert, Alex Fulick. And welcome to another episode of Preparing for the Unexpected. I'm your host, Alex Fulick. And as always, we like to talk about things related to disaster recovery, business continuity, emergency response, you know, and, and all the various aspects that uh, are captured by those uh, in, um, industries and professions. Uh, I do like to talk about various aspects of it. And recently, I've started to really look into things that uh, uh, go beyond our normal, how do we bring up a mainframe? You know, what applications do we need? And started to look at some of the people aspects. I know speaking with many organizations and other professionals, everybody says their key resource is their employees, you know, their people. And when you look at documented plans, you only see the piece that says, you know, getting them out of the building. You know, how do we evacuate and, you know, meet at our assembly locations? I wanted to go a bit deeper than that. So today I've got a guest who's going to help us with some of that, you know, on how we, we deal with disasters on uh, a psychological level, you know, and 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 making, you know, dealing with our, our pain and things that we, we feel when, when we have traumatic events and uh, you know, other events in our lives. So today I have a psychologist, Dr. Ricky Miller, joining us. Dr. Miller, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Um, can you take a few minutes and maybe uh, tell our listeners uh, about yourself? You know, kind of give us a, a bit of a little biography on yourself, you know. Okay, well, just uh, briefly, um, I obtained my PhD from uh, University of Waterloo. And uh, that was back in 1980. And I did a pre-doctoral internship at the Lafayette Clinic, which was in Detroit. Um, after that, I was a staff psychologist at Toronto General Hospital, a major teaching hospital in Toronto. And then I was the chief psychologist at another hospital in Toronto, Scarborough Grace. And since 1990, I've been in private practice. Um, I have a general practice with... Um, particular specialty in health, and um, I do a lot of work helping people who've had personal injuries, and I also work with people who have PTSD, anxiety, depression, so it's, it's also a general practice. So that's just a little bit of my background. Oh, well, thank you very much. So you, we've got uh, the right person on the show, someone with lots of uh, experience and uh, knowledge on the, on the subject that we want to touch today, so that's great. Uh, I, I was checking out your website, um, and for our listeners, just so you're aware, um, you, you can get some information on uh, Dr. Miller at rickymillerpsychologist.com, and Ricky is, has, is spelled R-I-C-K-E-Y, millerpsychologist.com. And Dr. Miller, you know, can you define what health psychology is? Well, health psychology is... Um is approaching health issues in terms of prevention as well as treatment as a psychophysiological phenomenon because it's understood now by most clinicians and researchers that every sensation we have, every problem we have has both physical and psychological components. 
and that it's a false dichotomy to separate the two. So health psychology is focusing on helping people um, not only cope with health issues psychologically, but also to use psychological approaches to affect actual physical changes. And uh, there's a lot of research to back that up. So we partner a great deal with family physicians and um, other specialists to help people with a whole variety of health problems, both benign health problems, for example, gastrointestinal problems, headaches, arthritis, back pain, as well as uh, cancer-related problems. And, um, and we also help people who've had uh, cardiovascular events, um, heart attacks, stroke, um, not only recover, um, but also uh, prevent, help, to help them to prevent those problems, just as an example. So well, using our, our disaster recovery business continuity, people that have you know, experience traumatic events, um, yes. you know, bombing, bombings in subways or, yes. you know, yes. the 9-11, you know, the, the, the mm-hmm. Twin Tower disaster. Some with, with health psychology, then, based on what you said, it doesn't necessarily have people can be affected and they don't have to be the person who was actually in the disaster. Right. To that, to to be to be affected by it. Right. That, oh, that's very, very true. I mean, obviously, uh, people who are directly affected, or directly involved, rather, are often most uh, affected, but also people who witness such disasters and such uh, catastrophes and and crimes um, are also, it's also possible for them to develop a host of psychological problems. But I would like to point out that well, the research suggests that 90% of us experience some kind of trauma over the course of our lifetime, um, maybe not on that scale as, as uh, 9-11, but, um, but most of us experience some kind of trauma during our life, but yet two-thirds of us manage on our own. We, we manage to cope and get on with, uh, with living and, and somehow deal with the, with the traumatic effects without any further help. So that, I think that's really important to emphasize. Um, and then there, of course, are some, uh, some other people. There's a, you know, a third who really do need some help, and they may develop psychological problems, they may develop physical problems, then they often develop both. So that, that poses an interesting question then. So why can some people cope with a traumatic event and others can't? Because That's if an we excellent have, question. Yeah. If we have a fire um, Well, the, the research right? suggests that people who are more resilient tend to have uh, closer relationships with people. They tend to have more social support. That's a very important variable. They tend to be people who have um, a higher level of education, uh, basically a higher social status so they're not disadvantaged. They're people who don't have a pre-morbid, um, like a pre-existing psychological problem with depression or anxiety. So people who've, who've been coping well and psychologically have been doing pretty well in their lives. They haven't had a lot of stress in their lives, like really other traumatic events uh, to tax their resources. Um, these are some of the variables that the research has suggested are protective. Um, and I think, 
you know, people, um, some people have more emotional resources for coping than others that may also be tied to genetic variables as well and constitutional variables. Oh, what, like, like what? With when it comes to genetics, what, what kind of things would that? Well, mean? we know that some people have a genetic predisposition to have difficulty regulating cortisol or serotonin, um, which are uh, really important hormones and neurotransmitters uh, that um, that affect how we respond to stress. So when we when we look at babies, um, we can often see um, a temperamental predisposition in some babies to be very anxious, for example, and that can be moderated. It, it, you know, we're not determined by by our, our genetic predisposition, but but some of us are born with a tendency to be anxious when we're stressed, and others of us are uh, sort of have a tendency to become more depressed when we're stressed or to become more angry when we're stressed. So there's a, there's a, it seems to be a predisposition based on temperament. And again, it can be modified. It doesn't mean that um, if we have a predisposition to be anxious that we're going to become really anxious people through, throughout our lives. There's a humongous uh, component of learning here. But um, but there is there does seem to be a predisposition that some people have to be to become anxious when they're stressed, and that would increase their risk for developing post traumatic stress reactions or symptoms. So is that why in um, you know some traumatic situations we have uh, on a normal day to day basis we've got somebody. Uh, you know, person A and person B. Person A is the leader, you know, and they're strong. Uh, mm-hmm. And person B, you know, just kind of, you know, is, does whatever they need to do during the, the work day. But when something traumatic happens, suddenly person B changes and becomes, you know, a strong leader. And person A all of mm-hmm. a sudden freezes. You know, well, the it's opposite complicated. Occurs. Like we're, we're really complicated creatures, you know, where we're <laughs> all um, responding with um, our our learning history and our temperament and, um, you know, our social circle uh, in terms of what kind of support we've had and have right now. And so um, we're responding to a traumatic event with all of these variables interacting so that it is sometimes difficult if you don't know the person and you don't know their history and, and their current situation, it's difficult to predict if you're looking from the outside as to who is going to be more resilient and become, say, the leader and who is going to have a lot of difficulty. You might not know um, if it's a coworker or um, a colleague ahead of time. So there you don't really, really know any... the person. There really isn't any way of knowing how uh, a person would could could react to a traumatic event, then, right? Well, there is a way. I mean, we know as psychologists when we talk to people, when we assess people, we're asking them many questions to to find out how they've dealt with stressful events that have happened in their lives because we all have had stress. I'm just saying, if you're working, if you're say if you're a police officer and you're working, you have a partner, you may not know that your partner's history, like family history, or what, mm-hmm. you know, on a personal level, what kind of stress that person has dealt with and how he or she has dealt with it. If you know that that person's managed and has coped, 
um, you know, in a healthy way and somehow they've managed, then that's going to increase the chance that they're going to be able to deal with another problem. But if you don't know their learning history, you don't know them at that level, then you may not know and you may be surprised. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, you know, that's when you do, like I said, end up with people who you uh, wouldn't expect all of a sudden coming to the forefront and helping yeah. helping out. I'll just when give people you an, who... an example that's not related sure. to first responders, um, but sometimes when I'm working with someone who's had um, a car accident that it hasn't really hasn't resulted in a very serious physical injury, but they're traumatized psychologically by the accident, and they're having a great deal of difficulty um, coping with 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 the fact that it occurred. Um, sometimes that person, when I'm exploring their past, discloses that they had a sexual abuse in the past or they were assaulted in the past, and so their resources for coping with this car accident have, has just taxed them. They, they were not, they're not able to cope with that because they've had to deal with this other traumatic episode that happened in their life. And, um, and then it becomes clear the reason they're having so much difficulty coping with this current stressor. So looking at someone's history and what, the, what that person's had, had to deal with in their life tells you a lot. Uh, I... I... You know, I, I can envision a few things uh, myself where we've had um, uh, incidents at work, so to speak, and, you know, you see the difference in people and how they respond and, and act, you know, and not knowing their histories. And sometimes you you do see things where like, oh, well, I, I thought that person would have, you know, stood up and been, yeah. been more alert as to, as to what was going on, not knowing their history, you know, and then... Now that yeah. you've brought that forward, you know, that could have been something, you know, that that's why that person wasn't, you know, and the, able and to stand up. And the other thing up. is we, we learn how to cope um, often just by watching our parents and other very significant people when we're growing up. And we don't know what the, if we don't know what those models are, then also we, we may be surprised. But, you know, if, if parents are helping their children develop constructive coping strategies and thinking in a constructive way, they, that person is going to be better equipped to handle a stressor now. Whereas, you know, many times we see people who engage in catastrophic thinking. They see, they see a problem or a stressor or, or some event occur and they feel that they're going to die or it's, it's you know, it's the end of everything. Um, and often that kind of thinking comes from the fact that it comes from their lack of learning, that they haven't learned how to cope, how to speak to themselves or think rationally um, when, when a frightening event occurs. So our learning history really plays a huge role in how we manage. And the, the wonderful thing about being human is there's no time limit. We can all learn how to cope better. So it doesn't matter if someone's background was deficient in terms of, of, of learning. People have the capacity to learn now how to handle stressful situations better. And that's why uh, going to a psychologist can be really helpful. It's, it's a very educational approach that we use. And as I said, it's wonderful that as humans we can continue to learn through our lifetime. So do... Do we need traumatic events in our lives to learn? 
no, I would I would certainly not not say that. Um, but unfortunately, we don't have control over over life, right? Life happens, and and there are stressful things, and unfortunately, sometimes traumatic events that occur. I think that we need to live with a balance that's really difficult to strike, which is realizing that there are no guarantees so that, mm-hmm. you know, uh, we, we make plans. Many, many of us make plans as if everything will be fine. Um, and I think we have to live that way. But we need to strike this balance, as I was saying, between um, feeling that the probability is we'll be safe but at the same time recognizing that life does happen and there are unpredictable things that can occur, and to be prepared for those so that we're not completely shocked when something happens and our plans don't quite work out. So it's a difficult balance for us to to strike Mm -hmm. because we don't want to live in fear that something bad is always going to happen, but at the same time, I don't think it helps if we if we live as if everything is guaranteed to go the way we want. Right. And I think that's a perfect time to take our first break. We're talking with Dr. Ricky Miller, psychologist, a health psychologist, and we'll be right back. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Attention. If you're a parent, educator, social worker, or civic or religious leader, the most important program you'll hear this week is Exploited, Crimes Against Humanity. Host Opal Singleton and her guest show how our children and others are being dangerously lured by predators through the dark web, social media apps, and games. Beyond that, the program looks at trends in human trafficking and more. You'll never think of the Internet the same way again. Listen Thursdays at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips is an insider's glimpse at a life from a psychological perspective. It's a look at what matters to us. Why do we laugh? How do we cope with stress? Are men and women really that different? What is it about our relationships? How are they formed? How they work out? And why they sometimes don't? Every week is something new to engage you. Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll turn up your perspective on life. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your questions. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. You are 
listening to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Fullen. Email your questions to info at stone-road.com. Again, that's I-N-F-O at stone-road.com. Now back to Preparing for the Unexpected. And welcome back to the show. We're talking with Dr. Ricky Miller. And I, I'd like to make a, uh, a correction. Um, Dr. Miller uh, corrected me. I, I've been saying this wrong. I kept saying health psychologist, but Dr. Miller is a clinical psychologist. So my apologies, Dr. Miller. Oh, no, that's fine. Um, Thank you. <laughs> um, so in, in this segment, um, let's talk about pain, you know, and the various sure. types of pain and treatments that, that are out there for people. Because I don't think that many organizations, especially those that experience disasters, you know, of some level, you know, some are more extreme than others, you know, really understand that, you know, there are treatments out there for their employees, you know, if something happens. So can you explain what some of the pain, uh, what what some of the uh, types of pain are and what kind of treatments are out there for people? Okay, well, um, first of all, I just want to make the point that a lot of people who experience stress develop physical symptoms, and some of those physical symptoms are pain, painful symptoms, like, for example, stomach pain, chest pain, um, back pain, and headaches. These are common sequelae of, of stressful experiences. Not everybody develops pain problems, but most, most of us, when we are stressed, because stress and because, in fact, everything we experience, pain included, is psycho- psychological and physical. The mind and the body are constantly interacting. So there are almost always physical symptoms when we're upset. And the more stressed we are and the more uh, upset we are, often the more uh, we feel physical symptoms. So I think it's really important to realize that all sensations, including pain, are psychophysiological. Um, that it doesn't make sense to talk about emotional pain or physical pain, and that all pain is real. That there's there's no such thing as imagined pain. You know, if somebody has a sensation, whether it's itching, or hunger, mm-hmm. or pain, it's all real, and that's really very very important. Um, the other thing that's really important is that is to recognize the that the medical tests we have, although they're very advanced cannot really measure pain, and that we really only know about pain based on a person's experience of pain. Um, That uh, medical tests can rule out very serious pathology, but they can't measure a a great deal when it comes to pain problems. And just to to emphasize that, because sometimes people will have many uh, medical tests that all come back negative and then begin to doubt themselves um, as to the reality of their pain. And it's really important that people do not do that, that they trust their own feelings and sensations as real. There's a lot so of, down, like, don't downplay what you're feeling. Yeah, right? and not to deny or try to say, well, nothing's wrong with me, so I guess it's all in my head, because it doesn't make any sense um, to say that. Um, there's a big difference between acute pain and chronic pain. Um, acute pain would be, for example, if you sprain your ankle and it hurts, but it's temporary. So it's acute pain, and after some period of time, um, it heals. The damage uh, heals, and it no longer the ankle no longer hurts. 
whereas chronic pain is pain that goes on for, say, six months or more than six months and um, requires a completely different approach. With with acute pain, we, we often are told to rest the body part. And with chronic pain, we want to slowly and gradually and gently increase activity level, not rest, because if we rest for a long period of time with a chronic pain problem, then we become deconditioned, and um, that weakness um, can lead to even more pain and depression because we're doing less. Um, and families respond very differently to acute and chronic pain, or those people who are supporting us. Um, they may be very empathic and sympathetic and helpful for an acute pain problem, but when a pain goes, a pain problem goes on for a long time, people around us often mm-hmm. become fed up and tired and don't know what to do and feel helpless and become less sympathetic. So chronic pain is difficult to deal with. There are a lot of psychological treatments that help people with pain problems, and it's important for people to realize it's not just a medical issue. In fact, physicians don't have very much to offer pain, like chronic pain patients. Um, Sometimes medication helps. Sometimes nerve blocks, which are another type of medication, help. But besides those medical interventions, there's not a lot that, physicians can offer someone with chronic headaches or chronic back pain or uh, chronic GI problems like irritable bowel syndrome um, or any other chronic problem any other chronic pain problem so we often work psychologists often work closely with physicians to help patients with chronic pain patients uh, chronic pain problems rather uh, cope better um, there are a host of important psychological approaches, um, cognitive behavioral treatments aim to help people change their thoughts about their pain problem. For example, a patient um, I'm working with who has chronic headaches began, uh, when, when she began to see me, disclosed that every time the headache occurred, she imagined she had a brain tumor and that you know, she had some, this, she had like a terminal illness that nobody had discovered. And so, of course, her anxiety levels were extremely high. And she, she was feeling even more pain because she was so anxious and panicky about the, the headache every time it occurred. So one of the most important interventions for her was changing her thinking to, uh, for her to first accept that it was okay and natural for her to be nervous and, and worried but then to use reason to look at the fact that she had been checked out medically, that there wasn't any evidence of a brain tumor, and to instead think to herself, well, this is an annoying headache, but it's not the end of my life. And that really changed her frame of reference regarding the pain. I mean, the pain was still in her way, but it was no longer uh, perceived by her as a life-threatening problem. So changing one's thoughts about the pain can be a very powerful intervention. And that's one of the reasons that cognitive behavioral techniques are important. But they're not the only ones. Um, the other very common techniques to help people cope with, uh, with chronic pain and, and acute pain as well um, are relaxation techniques, hypnosis, meditation, 
Um, some of these techniques are really helpful in helping people distract themselves from the, the painful sensation, but also possibly transform it into something that's easier to handle. Um, so thinking of a pain as a stabbing pain um, is not very helpful for most people. That, that, that thought and that image increase the intensity of the pain they actually experience. And it isn't an imaginary effect. It's, again, a real effect. So if someone feels, uh, begins to have an image or feels the sensation as pressure instead of a stabbing pain, I'm just giving that as an example, that might help the person cope better with the pain and, in fact, decrease the intensity of it so they can distract themselves more from, from that uh, pain. So the way we think about pain, the way we, we imagine it, the language we use has uh, a direct effect on our experience. Interesting. There were a couple of things that came to mind. When you, one, when you were talking about uh, chronic pain, mm-hmm. that where, where uh, a person's support network, you know, um, after a while kind of goes numb to a person's uh, issue. And I couldn't help but think, you know, that's when people start to say, you know, oh, just get over it. Yeah. You know, and that that yeah. that can't be good to hear for for someone no. uh, experiencing and, pain. You know, or yeah, and, and you know, any kind of minimizing um, response, of course, is is the opposite of what someone with a chronic pain needs needs to hear. They need um, both um, empathy, which is understanding with compassion that that they're struggling with a pain problem. They also need encouragement to, to do whatever they need to do to handle it better. So sometimes um, a partner um, or spouse will be over-solicitous and do too much for the person because they feel a lot of sympathy, and that's mm-hmm. not a good response. Um, and then other times the partner or spouse responds in an angry way or, you know, like, like you're suggesting, uh, saying something like get over it or, you know, come on, do more or you should go to work or something like that. And that message also is not helpful. People with, with chronic pain need, need to be able to do as much as they can do. And so it's not good if, they, if there's too much help, uh, too much sympathy, and it's not good if there isn't enough empathy and support. So it's it's hard. It's hard if you have a family member who is suffering a chronic pain problem to know how to respond. Um, you know, if you see someone you love who's suffering, it, it's really difficult to know what, what to do, and many people feel helpless in that situation. But the best thing they can do is empathize and encourage the person to do as much as the person can do in terms of activity. Mm-hmm. And not not to encourage them to to lie down for most of the day, for example, because that right. um, you know that kind of inactivity just leads to uh, worsening of this situation. Mm-hmm. Well, the the other point that came to mind is when you were talking about chronic um, uh, pain was mm-hmm. the and, and you gave a a good uh, suggestion about it the the lady that um, you know thought she had a brain tumor or was thinking she had a brain tumor every time she got a headache yeah and you know i'm i'm wondering 
with with what we see on TV on a, a daily basis, you know, fire, forest fires, and you know, wars and things like that, does that have an impact on us on how we can we think about our pain, or you know, does it impact us imagining pains or or things that you know, I see a terrorist attack, or oh, that might happen to me, and now all of a sudden my anxiety level goes up. You know, yeah. d- does our our our, our yeah. media world right now have impact on us? Oh, I think for sure. I'm not aware of the research in this area, but just uh, just from my own uh, clinical experiences with my patients, um, yeah, absolutely. And uh, people feel more anxious and just feel unsafe um, viewing all of these horrible things that, that, that occur and being bombarded with this information, basically whenever they look, whether it's uh, wherever they look, rather, whether it's uh, the the television or whether it's on their phone or whether they're hearing it from other people. Um, It seems to be everywhere, all these, uh, you know, news of disasters and news of terrorist attacks and such and, and warfare and all of the tragedies and horrible crimes occurring. Um, I think that it's, uh, that's why I was saying uh, earlier it's a challenge to um, to believe or to 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 assume safety in this situation. It, it, you know, when when you're given all of this information, the common response is to feel more anxious and less safe, mm-hmm. and that of course doesn't help us cope. If we have that feeling of danger, and if we're if we're predisposed to be anxious, if we're anxious anyway, um, like that lady in that example I gave, if mm-hmm. she's anxious anyway, every time she has a headache that she's going to die, and then she watches the news, so then she's even more anxious, and then she develops even more headaches, and then she has even more trouble coping. So more anxiety and, and a sense, you know, the message uh, that you're not safe, that terrible thing could happen to you any time, um, that is really making it hard for people who are already coping with problems and who are already anxious. It makes it even harder for them to cope. And where, which is why I think, you know, some organizations, you know, with the disaster recovery, business continuity, you know, the disaster planning type stuff, need to consider some of these aspects, you know, with their human resource partners and, and you know, who are able to reach out to psychologists as well mm-hmm. to help their employees that experience these things because they are seeing it so much on the news, you know, and hearing it about, uh, you know, bombs and fires and, all, well, just about everything you see on TV, you know, weather events and everything right now. That, right. you know, that now this can happen to me. And, you know, sometimes I think that, you know, if if we go back 50 years, the, maybe the same events were still occurring. We just didn't know about them now. You know, so yeah, I think you're you right. Know, the, me- I, I mean, the, the media the now. It's, yeah. It's, yeah, the, techno- the technology has um, ensured that we're exposed over and over again every day to these horrifying, often horrifying events. And... Mm-hmm. I think for some people, some people become desensitized to these events, kind of mm-hmm. numb to them over time, which also is, is unfortunate. And many others become sensitized and become more and more anxious and fearful and live in fear. 
So I think it's really important if somebody is having difficulty on a day-to-day basis, just functioning on a day-to-day basis, and if someone is, is really struggling, it is important for that person or the persons around them to, to think of, of referring them for psychological help because it's just um, it's not a good way to live, it's not a good way to cope. Mm-hmm. Somehow we need to recover our sense of safety despite all of this news. That's the you, goal. You, yeah, I agree. You know, so, somewhere there's got to be a happy balance. Yeah. Know? I mean, we have to be um, realistic, but not live yes. in fear. Well, you you actually... Um, well, we're actually at time to take a break right now, but um, I do, when we come back, I'd like to talk about the desensitized uh, point that you brought up. I think there there's a question there I'd like to ask. Sure. Um, so we're going to take our second break right now. We're talking with Dr. Ricky Miller, clinical psychologist, and we'll be right back. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. All around the outermost rim of the shield, he set the mighty stream of the river Oceanus, creating Achilles' shield in Homer's The Iliad, Book 18. Rachel Carson in The Sea Around Us said, All at last, return to the sea, to Oceanus, the ocean river. Like the ever-flowing stream of time, the beginning and the end. Moyer's Environmental Dialogues with Dr. Rob Moyer offers lively dialogue and revealing narrative inquiry into how individuals are overcoming obstacles and creating a greener and blue planet Earth. Tune in Thursdays at 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 noon Pacific on the Voice America Variety Channel. Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition, and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts. We'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Now you don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take Voice America on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Fuller. Email your questions to info at stone-road.com. Again, that's I-N-F-O at stone-road.com. Now back to Preparing for the Unexpected. And welcome back to the show. Once again, we're talking with Dr. Ricky Miller, clinical psychologist. And in our last segment, Dr. Miller, um, you mentioned desensitized. And I'm kind of wondering, are there concerns for people who have become desensitized to you know, traumatic events, you know, burning buildings or, you know, watching their, their computer room burn to the ground, that kind of thing? 
Well, yeah. I mean, I think when when we become numb, emotionally numb to horrifying events, then we're going to be less um, helpful to other people, less empathic with other people, um, and less uh, like appropriately responsive to each other. Um, because then it, everything becomes like a movie instead mm-hmm. of like it's different, difficult for people who become desensitized to these events to differentiate reality from, say, a movie. Um, so I think it's, um, it, it's a challenge again for all, all of us to remain cognizant when we see or hear about a news story where people are suffering to realize that that those people could be us and that they are real people and there's real pain involved and that we could do something to help. We need to think about how we can help. So I think that's the challenge really for all of us because we're all in danger of becoming desensitized. We're bombarded with, with, the, um, with these images and, and often very graphic images of horrible mm-hmm. things that happen. So I think that's very important for all of us. Um, it's sort of... Um, you know, if I could just turn this on its head, this this uh, point that you're making about, or you were asking about desensitization, and that that it's not a good thing in this context. You know, becoming desensitized to people's suffering. But when it comes to treating post-traumatic stress disorder, psychologists often help people become desensitized to something they fear. That's something that uh, reminds them of a traumatic event that that is preventing them from living life in an in a effective way and being and being okay and being happy again. So mm-hmm. desensitization can be a good thing if it's used in this context as a treatment. Mm-hmm. So if I could just give you a, an example, um, someone I was working with who was working in an industrial. Um, laundry company, um, he witnessed an explosion of a dryer. Something went wrong with this huge industrial dryer, and I think the door wasn't closed properly or something, and it, and it exploded. And um, he was injured, but not in a significant way. It wasn't a serious injury. But after that happened, he was fearful. Uh, first of all, he couldn't go back to that company. He couldn't even walk down the street uh, where the company was located because he just kept recalling and having flashbacks of this, of this horrible accident um, where he felt his life was in danger or had been in danger. And he wasn't able to do his laundry at home either. He had the same reaction to the dryer at home. Um, and even looking at clothes, even looking at, at, at clothes and thinking of washing them and putting them in the dryer began to uh, trigger intense anxiety on his part. So part of the treatment that, that helped him was very gradually and slowly with his consent and his full collaboration and moving at his pace, exposing him to clothes, exposing him at first to just using his mind to imagine uh, putting his clothes in a washing machine near a dryer, uh, imagining putting his clothes into a dryer. Um, And we did this in sessions along with teaching him relaxation techniques and some hypnotic techniques to help him calm himself while he just imagined 
doing these um, activities that previously he couldn't tolerate. And in little small baby steps, we eventually got to the point where he could actually wash his clothes and put them in his dryer at home. And from there, we moved to, because he did want to go back to work, and he did want to go back to that particular uh, company. And the company was holding his job open for him while he was on disability leave. Um, So eventually... Um, I actually did some in vivo work, which is actual, not imaginary work, it's actually doing something with him, where um, I actually walked with him on the street where this factory was, again, um, helping him practice relaxation and cognitive behavioral techniques, reassuring himself that that he would likely be safe, that this would likely not happen again, that he would likely be okay. And uh, over time, we also managed to walk, eventually walk into the company, um, and eventually um, he was able to stand in front of that machine and practice these techniques. So he became desensitized to the dryer that had previously triggered enormous, intense anxiety on his part. So all of that happened with his... Uh, in a collaborative way, uh, at, you know, in a time and pace and schedule that he set, and he was actually able to go back to work and really experienced and still does experience minimal anxiety, whereas he had been disabled by his anxiety previously. So that's just an example of how effective desensitization or exposure therapy can be um, along with cognitive behavioral and relaxation techniques. Well, I'm glad to hear the success story with that gentleman. You know, I'm happy to hear that for him. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it goes back to motivation to change, uh, whether mm-hmm. it's someone I've worked with who has a motor vehicle accident who's afraid to drive again. That's a very common uh, anxiety reaction. Or somebody who's fallen and who's afraid to go for a walk, or someone who, um, who, who had a, a serious drug reaction who's afraid of taking any medication. Um, it doesn't really matter what the um, trauma was and how frightened the person is and how worried they are. If the person wants to change and wants to learn how to, how to handle this better and, and be free of their, of their fear, then they're likely going to succeed. It's it's interesting uh, you brought that up. While you were talking, I actually was thinking of an incident of a friend of mine many years ago who was hit by a car in a busy yeah. intersection. And for a long time, um, myself or you know some other friends had to walk with him uh, mm-hmm. ha- you know, most of the way home uh, yeah. because he was afraid to go through this one area again. He thought That's he was right. going to get hit. Yeah, you know, but over common. time... You know, with, with us being there and offering our support, you know, and just, you know, you know, him making it feel as though, you know, uh, um, that this is just a regular thing. You know, it, it was a freak thing that happened. It's not going to happen every single time you walk near a street. Right. You know, he got over it and was able to, to move on. But that's it was very great. interesting, you know. Yeah, that's wonderful. That, and that, again, you know, he, he worked towards desensitizing himself and also 
practice cognitive behavioral techniques himself by thinking and believing that he would likely be okay crossing the street and deciding he wanted to be able to do that again independently. I also, I just want to mention also that, you know, we're talking about traumatic events like motor vehicle accidents or falls um, or this uh, dryer accident that I mentioned. But there are a lot of situations where people have traumatic or or, uh, PTSD symptoms because of sexual abuse or assault that um, happened in their past. Um, And so there are many cases where, for example, um, women who have been sexually abused in the past um, may may have um, intrusive thoughts and... um, have uh, a great deal of of difficulty trusting others because they're afraid, especially trusting men, because they're afraid they'll be hurt again. Um, So sometimes it's not um, like an accident that triggers post-traumatic stress symptoms. Sometimes a chronic stressor like sexual abuse or physical abuse um, that a person has experienced can lead to those symptoms as well. And um, that you know that that's an important important also to uh, recognize um, because those people are at risk for becoming really anxious if something stressful happens in the future. So um, if somebody, like for example, someone who has a car accident and who's phobic about driving or riding in cars, it may be that they had stressful experiences in the past, then the anxiety about that is coming up to, um, is, is triggered by this other event, this, uh, this, this uh, stressor that happens currently like that motor vehicle accident. So it's so important to triggers, recognize that too. So different triggers can cause the anxiety. It doesn't have to be the same trigger reoccurring again. Exactly. Because if, if you're really stressed, especially when you're in your childhood, um, and especially if it's a chronic stressor that doesn't just happen once, or it's a very serious assault that happened once, let's say, then that person's at risk because, you know, they, they didn't really have the resources to cope with that situation, uh, say, as a child. And um, as an adult, if something again happens which threatens their security and safety, that person is vulnerable for, for developing anxiety. So mm-hmm. sometimes we help people as psychologists, we help them with past events in order to help them with the present event. And to deal with you know, potential future ones. Yes, and to help them deal with future ones, exactly. Mm-hmm. So with PTSD, are there any things that uh, we should look out for? You know, if, if um, uh, not necessarily, uh, well, we'll stick with the, you know, the disaster recovery type, type sure. of thing. If, if we have some sort of an event at work, you know, um, mm-hmm. an active shooter, you know, we've seen that, that in the news yeah. as well. And, you know, fires and things like that. Right, right. But, but I go through it and. I, I get through that situation, you know, I move on and, you know, I'm, we're back in the office and working. Mm-hmm. What should I look out for, for others who may have 
come back to work and yeah. are appearing to be fine, but, yeah, but they're not. You know, may not be. What what mm-hmm. what are some of the things I should look so, out for? Yeah, so um, I do a lot of work with police um, here in Toronto, and um, this is a question that many many times comes up when they're asking about colleagues. Um, so. I think the most important thing to ask the, the person that you're concerned about is, is, of course, if you're close to the person and they're going to be open with you, I mean, this is a variable, right? Um, but asking, asking the person how they're feeling, how they're sleeping is very important. Um, if, they're, if they're feeling that they're, um, that they're doing okay, despite whatever the trauma was, you know, because, again, you're looking for someone who's going to be honest with you and open with you, and that depends on how close you are with that person. Behaviorally, you're not going to see much if somebody wants to hide the symptoms they're having, because these symptoms are not um, often, they're not obvious. For example, how do you know that someone's having intrusive thoughts or flashbacks? unless they tell you. How do you know someone is hyper-aroused? I mean, you might see someone who looks like they're like wound up all the time, but many people are hyper-aroused and you don't know. Um, how do you know that someone's having nightmares? Unless the person tells you, you're not going to see it. Or sleep disturbance. Mm-hmm. Concentration problems, you might see that. Um, easily startled. You know, people who've been... Um, who are having trouble um, because of a trauma are usually, again, hyper alert and very, very easily startled at a, at a noise. Um, but some people are like that anyway who haven't developed a, a trauma. Um, avoidance. Uh, so if someone is avoiding talking about the traumatic event, if they can't stand talking about it, that would be a sign. Um, if they are avoiding driving near the area where it occurred or doing something that reminds them of the event, you might see that behaviorally, the avoidance. Um, If they are unable to recall key elements of the event, that would also be a red flag. Um, I think the main main thing is um, there aren't too many things you would actually see behaviorally it's more mm-hmm. about the the fact that the, it's more about the person feeling that they're not doing okay that that they're having trouble sleeping that they're having trouble concentrating that they're having difficulty um, that they're feeling persistent guilt or shame or depression or anxiety you know that they're that they're not feeling okay that they're feeling distressed all of that is self report so what I'm saying is there's not too much you can actually see. I guess the, the main, main ones would be avoidance and uh, maybe overreaction, maybe someone okay. who, who would be, you know, overreacting to things, uh, okay. inability to recall some elements of the event. Okay. Probably I avoidance we... would be the main one. We've actually run out of time. With this was getting really good and some fantastic stuff from Dr. Ricky Miller here. Um, I want to thank you, Doctor, for being uh, on the show. Oh, you're and welcome. 
Um, uh, once again, if anyone has any questions, please check out Dr. Miller's uh, website, rickymillerpsychologist.com. And in the meantime, everyone, please stay prepared. Thank you for joining us for Preparing for the Unexpected. Please tune in for another edition featuring your host, Alex Bullock, next Thursday at 6 a.m. Pacific Time and 9 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll see you here next week.